Welcome to Play USA. Thanks to Education USA, your official source on US higher education, providing programs and resources to help you get to a US college. Search online for Education USA Australia. Welcome to another episode of Play USA, our ninth edition of the year, all thanks to Education USA Australia. In this podcast, we have two very special guests, the first being Violet Apiza. She plays at Kaiser University and NAIA uh, School. And then we also chat to uh, David Hodge. He's the director of Aussie Athletes Agency. They find uh, college placement for uh, aspiring uh, college tennis athletes. Turning over to Violet, she, of course, plays at Kaiser. Uh, she's the number one NAIA-ranked female uh, player in the U.S. Um, she had a very well-decorated junior career. She finished 24 in the ITF uh, World Junior Rankings. She was the doubles finalist of Wimbledon Juniors and the Australian Open Juniors as well. Over the U.S. summer, she actually represented Papua New Guinea in the Billie Jean King Cup. So Violet takes us through the ins and outs of her journey at college. Obviously, I started off with juniors and right after high school, I was trying to decide whether to go pro straight away or college. And it was just a thing that I had to speak, obviously, with my parents and they still wanted me to have an education. So that was one of the reasons why I decided to go to college. But right after I graduated high school, I actually took like two years off from tennis I don't know because obviously from juniors I played from the age from 14 to 18 and it was obviously a lot of like traveling and just playing tennis full-time and just literally committing my whole life to that and then I kind of got sick of tennis and didn't really start to enjoy playing it so obviously I took that two years off and just tried to focus on just being happy and just doing other stuff like I did some coaching on the side obviously trained and then I actually spoke to a D1 coach from Texas Tech and he was just telling me obviously you don't have to come to D1 but if you want to try out the college scene I think that a JUCO school will be good because obviously it's a two-year um period just go there and see if you like it and then I ended up committing to Tyler Junior College and I went there for two years and ended up falling in love with it and yeah now I'm here at Kaiser and yeah I mean you had a a well decorated junior career finishing 24 ITF I mean you've played all the Grand Slam juniors you made finals of the Australian Open juniors doubles and of course Wimbledon doubles finalist as well but then what I mean what differences does does college have that really made you sort of love tennis again compared to because tennis is an individual sport right and now you're yeah. you know going yeah. to a team aspect did that play a role I feel like like when I was in high school we did we played a lot of team events um, so I loved being in that team environment and obviously coming to college, um, that, that was basically the same. And I love playing as a team with all the girls and obviously doing it as one. And uh, I don't know, I just, when I came here, I fell in love with it and just that made me more passionate and actually enjoy and have fun here at college and obviously like coming to college I'm here by myself and having that independence of doing whatever I want and not having to 
be told what to do by my parents, but yeah. You've gone to an NAIA school, starting off at a junior college. That's something that I did. Many others have done. And one of the big myths that we, you know, we see back home in Australia is that if if it's not division one, then, you know, it's not worth going to, but obviously there's five different divisions. You're currently Mm -hmm. ranked one NAIA. As I was saying before, you had a well-decorated junior career. So why didn't you choose to play division one? Why did you go JUCO and then make the transfer to Kaiser? I mean, I had a lot of um, offers from D1 schools and I feel like at that time when I was at Juco trying to decide what I wanted to do, I think I was just afraid of going to D1 school. Um, Obviously, like I felt for me, like I just wanted to enjoy my time at college and just be more chill and like schooling and stuff because I feel like academically, like I don't like school. Um, so obviously, like one of the reasons why I chose to come to NIA was just to be a bit more easy on me with the schoolwork. But then obviously, like the tennis here is still, I feel the same level as any divisions, D1, D2, D3. Um, but yeah, like obviously it was a hard decision for me. And obviously, like with my dad, obviously he wanted me to go to a D1 school. But at the end of the day, like when we had the conversation of me deciding what I wanted to do, He just wanted me to be happy and that was all that mattered. I guess you get the best out of yourself academically and athletically. If you're at a place where you're happy and, you know, speaking to Teodora Jovic, who plays at Gwinnett, you know, she liked that private school, how it was small and you can really get the, you know, the most out of yourself versus, you know, if you went to a school, maybe a big SEC school like Alabama or South Carolina, Georgia, maybe you wouldn't have that same sort of satisfaction within yourself. No, yeah, like obviously like, going to a D1 school you're like fighting for trying to play in the lineup and obviously like the training like the schedules I've seen is a lot tougher um and in season and off season like traveling to all different places week in and week out um but like it's basically the same here at Kaiser um but I feel like it's a bit more chill and like for me like I think I think I've improved a lot and it says that like I played the Billie Jean King Cup um, over the summer and I beat like a top 20 doubles player in the world and like even though I'm at an NAIA school like I know I can still compete um, on a high level because like obviously my dream is to play pro when I'm done with college and like just having done that over the summer like I know I can still make it um even if I didn't go to a D1 school, I feel like anyone can make it. Now, comparing NAIA to a Division One school, usually with NAIA, there are older players, players who have come off the yeah. tour, want to play and get yeah. a college education. But yourself, you want to go to the pro tour. Now, recently, within the last couple of weeks, actually, the ITA has just collaborated with the WTA and the ITF for those players finishing uh, top five NCAA Division One can get a number of wildcard spots onto uh, into ITF and WTA tournaments. They haven't mm-hmm. done anything with the uh, NAIA, but you know, given that the standard of college is getting so much stronger, obviously with yourself wanting to go pro, do you think that's something that should be expanded upon to give players like yourself an opportunity to make that leap on to the pro tour? Yeah, I. Th- think so definitely like obviously like 
um, good players like myself or, I don't know, good players may not be academically there. That's why they come to NAIA. But I feel like everyone should be given an opportunity. I think they should definitely expand for other divisions um, like myself and obviously like we have like another girl that's new on our team. She was like top 500 for WTA and um, we have another girl coming in next semester she's on the WTA and coming back to college but obviously like all these good players I think that we should be given these opportunities to play and given the chance to compete maybe because like I don't know with me like financially like obviously it's harder like with family and all that traveling like obviously those expenses like cost a lot and just I guess just to be given that opportunity that would be good for everyone I don't think they should just give it to just D1. I think anyone in all divisions are great players. So, yeah. Being at Tyler, um, playing under Coach Dash Connell, yes. what, what what do you feel like you really picked up uh, playing two years at a, at a community college before transferring across? With Dash, like, he was a great coach. Um, I learned a lot from him. I'm um, just being in that team environment and, I guess, being a leader to the girls when I was a sophomore. When I just, the training and stuff, it just gave me that little taste of what college was like. And he made me really enjoy tennis more and the belief and competing again. I don't think I'd be here without Dash because he was amazing. And I enjoyed my two years at Tyler Junior College. And yeah. It takes us back to the Billie Jean King Cup. You've got fans, you've got line umpires, officials, that whole yeah. scene. Is, is that similar to how you felt? playing matches at college? Yes. Um, and I felt like, obviously, I played Billie Jean King Cup last year. And that was like my very, well, I played the Fed Cup before it switched to Billie Jean King Cup. Um, but yeah, I felt like this, well, the last time I played this summer, um, definitely felt like college, but like on the next level, like obviously you're representing your country and, your foot's on the line. Um, everyone just wants to win, but I loved it. Like even like like with college, like the pressure, like I felt like I handled the pressure like so well at Billie Jean King Cup. Um, and I guess that's why I played really well that um, during the summer. But yeah, I don't know. I just loved it. Like just playing for your country and playing for the girls on the team and competing. Um, I feel like with college, like when I first came here, I was very nervous and I guess didn't know how to handle it. But over the years, I guess I got better at it of just being composed and all of that. But like obviously going back to Billie Jean Cup over the summer, like it really helped me with just like relaxing and staying calm and keeping my nerves under control. Um but, yeah, like, obviously, like, you have your captain on court and the girls there with you every step of the way. So, like, having them there. But, obviously, going through my own personal experiences really helped me throughout the whole week when I was playing. Class schedule. So, take us through a day in the life at, at Kaiser. I mean, going from classes to, to practice to all these different avenues that make you the best that you can be. So Monday, Wednesday, Fridays, I have three classes all back-to-back -back, starting from 8 to 10.50. And then I go grab some lunch around 
And then I have practice from one to three. And then usually conditioning is on Monday, Tuesdays from three to four straight after practice. And then some like obviously I have like any injuries or like tightness or something, then I'll go see our trainer straight after that. And then usually I go to the calf around 5.30 and then come back and then just do some homework. So it's a pretty packed uh, day-to-day schedule. Looking at the fall season, I know you've got a couple of tournaments, um, some scrimmage matches. Take us through the fall. I know you just had uh, the ITA fall championships as well. Yeah, so that finished maybe like two weeks ago and then we obviously have the ITA Cup in two weeks, so we're obviously training for that. Um, and then we have, I think, two invitationals at against Nova and Barry. So like the these two top, like the top D two schools that we get to play every fall. So it should be good matches. Well, best of luck for the fall semester and transitioning to the spring. Uh, we'll be taking, we'll be tracking your progress uh, here at the first serve. So thanks for coming on our uh, Play USA podcast. We've I know I've been trying to schedule this for a, a little while, yes. but, uh, <laughs> but uh, all the best for the season. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Great catching up with Violet and really interesting uh, hearing her journey uh, starting at Tyler Junior College and making that transition to Kaiser. Of course, there are so many different uh, options, different avenues and different pathways throughout all of the divisions at college. Uh, someone of Violet's caliper of tennis would you'd usually see them play at a division one college violet really went through the option that uh, suited her uh, needs the most and that's something that we really speak to david hodge about in our uh, next chat we really delve into the ins and outs of college tennis the benefits of playing college tennis the types of college tennis of course different uh, colleges require different academic and athletic Uh, standards to be admitted also the transition from high school to college and then how can you use your collegiate degree back in australia something that's not really spoken uh, to much about is the visa process there's a lot of confusion uh, surrounding that entire process so we really try to unpack all of the questions that you might have uh, whether you're a coach an aspiring college player or even a parent. Uh, these are some questions uh, that I certainly had when I was uh, 18 looking to play college, not really knowing what to expect. So without further ado, this is our chat with David Hodge. There is so much confusion about colleges in the US. There's different divisions and different academic and athletic requirements. Now we've got the WTN and the UTR as a, uh, as a sort of a standard that coaches look at. So I'd, I'd like to just sort of delve into what are the different divisions of college tennis and, and how do they all differ in terms of getting into those colleges? Yeah, thanks, Lockie. I, I think uh, it's important to note that uh, there, are, there are big differences between the governing bodies and divisions, but, but largely those differences are based on academic prerequisites, not always tennis ability. And I think that's one of the big misconceptions uh, about uh, the divisions and the, and the uh, governing bodies in Australia. So... The main three governing bodies are the NCAA, NAIA, and then JCAA. That last one is the one that most people call junior college or JUCO. Now, within those governing bodies, uh, you've got divisions. One of the misconceptions that we hear constantly at Aussie Athletes Agency is that 
oh, NCAA Division One is is potentially the best. We don't like to talk about it that way. We we would rather talk about them being different than one being better than the other. So technically, there's a, a Division One in all three of those governing bodies. NCAA having Division One, two, and three. NAIA actually had two divisions until recently. They amalgamated, and there's just one division at the moment. And then junior college or NJCAA has three divisions. It's important to note, too, a common organisation that a lot of Australians play under is also the California Community College Athletic Association, which is very similar to the junior college governing body, but it, uh, it, it is obviously geographically located in California. Are there different entry requirements that different divisions require? you to actually be accepted into their college and and i will i will note compared to an australian university where you have to get a certain score to get into a certain course where it's a little bit different in the u.s right where you actually apply to the college directly uh that that's correct as i as i mentioned academic prerequisites are what differentiate the, the divisions and the governing bodies so we always talk about ncaa division one and and NCAA Division One academic prerequisites are very similar to NCAA Division Two, but those are the toughest academic prerequisites in the US collegiate pathway. If you qualify for those, you almost certainly will qualify for the other governing bodies and divisions. And, and those are the two divisions in, in NCAA where you're required to do certain coursework between uh, the start of grade nine and the end of grade 12. So a misconception, again, that we come across frequently is people say, oh, you've got to do certain classes in high school to be eligible to play college tennis. That's not necessarily true unless you're specifically targeting NCAA Division One and Two. So the core classes, as they're termed by the NCAA, in a nutshell, are four years of English, two years of science, two years of social science. Uh, so we talk about the big five at Aussie Athletes Agency being history, geography, legal studies, psychology and economics there are some others in that category commonly referred to as humanities in australia but we need two years in that category and then the last four years to make up 16 uh, total core courses can be any extra classes within those mentioned categories uh, but they'll also include things like a language so 16 years of those classes 16 total years of those classes within grades 9, 10, 11 and 12 are required. There are little, I'll call them fine print rules in terms of the timing of when you do those classes and also what the NCAA counts in terms of their GPA. So there are GPA calculations that can vary for the governing bodies. They may be looking at core course GPAs only. Particularly universities may be interested in cumulative GPAs, so they'll take into account all of the classes done, including things like PE and HPE outside of the core classes between grade nine and 12. So that's NCAA division one and two. Once you get outside of that, the governing body prerequisites, I would say, become easier overall. So the NAIA as a governing body doesn't require any particular coursework, but they do require a certain GPA. And then junior college, it's, I wouldn't say it's as easy as, but it is the easiest governing body. Uh, you need to have graduated from high school in Australia. So earned your certificate of education based on the state you live in. So there are players who don't decide to go to college until they're in grade 11 or grade 12. And what do you say to athletes who miss out on taking those classes 
in year nine and year 10 are there like obviously with myself i went to a community college and was able to transfer but is that is that something that you you encourage as well to take the junior college route and then transfer to maybe a division two or a uh, division one or even an naia college one of our big philosophies at AAA is to maximize the opportunities so Based on where you are, let's say you're in grade 11 or 12, you, you weren't aware of the prerequisites necessarily to qualify for NCAA Division One and Two in terms of particular coursework. But there are certain things you could do from whatever point you're at until the end of high school to maximise things. And one of those, particularly based on the NAIA and the junior college pathway, is your GPA. So there's certain classes that you might be able to take that will bump up your GPA and therefore give you uh, academic acceptance into some universities that a, a lower GPA wouldn't allow for. Um, as, as you mentioned, your pathway through the junior college system is definitely legitimate. There's some high quality uh, teams, programs, great funding, great tennis being played in those, uh, in those governing bodies. And the reason is we all know great tennis players where academics potentially aren't necessarily their thing in juniors, right? And I say that because a lot of people don't hit their academic peak until later on in life. So there's still time. If you're listening to this and, and you're thinking, gee whiz, I really haven't focused on my, my academics at all and tennis is my passion, you're not alone. Um, but recognise that wherever you are right now, if you're able to implement a few things to maximise your GPA, as an example, you may be uh, academically ad admittable into uh, a junior college uh, with a higher GPA than, than if you hadn't focused on that. So getting advice now, I'd say, is pivotal. Going into the junior college pathway, there's some phenomenal players that have done that, uh, obviously spending one to two years there and then you're one to two years older, you can then focus on your academics, improve your tennis uh, and, and then take a, an additional step into a NAIA university or, or an NCAA university, a four-year degree-granting university. Junior colleges are structured in the US where you're doing the same coursework of the same quality academically, and in fact, they exist to prepare you to go on to years three and four after you earn your associate's degree and go on to your bachelor's. So it's one system as long as you can qualify and, and, and um, uh, move into that system, you can really move anywhere you want within it. And one thing to add to that, David, with, with my journey going to a community college, I did really well and then was able to get an academic scholarship to an NAIA school. Had I have not taken the junior college route, then I wouldn't have had that uh, academic scholarship available to me. So, you know, those using the junior college route as a stepping stone can really help many students uh, get those discounts that they might not have necessarily gotten if they had have gone there in their freshman year. Right. Absolutely. Lockie, uh, you, you want to, again, going back to the philosophy of maximizing your opportunities, you want to maximize all, all pots of funding. A lot of people are aware of scholarship or use the phrase scholarship um, in a different way in Australia than they use it in the U S namely Scholarship isn't really talked about within uh, U.S. collegiate uh, environments because it's a little bit like people talking about their wage in Australia. People don't walk around talking about how much they get paid to do their job. It's a merit-based system 
So you are you're valued on what you bring to your team on a daily basis, right? So that that system, and, and you talked about the academic scholarship. At the end of the day, they want to compare apples to apples. And if you're in the U.S. academic system, they're able to compare your GPA and your coursework more accurately to their system when you're there, and therefore they reward that to a higher level. And if you're in grade 11 or 12 right now and you haven't focused on your academics in high school, there's still time. They'll, they'll reward uh, yearly GPAs. So if you get a great GPA in your freshman year, they're going to reward that for your sophomore year. And entrance exams are huge here in the US. I'm not sure how much they're encouraged for international students, but especially here in the States, the ACT is commonly taken. You can also take the SAT. But do you advise students to take uh, one or the other? Yeah, it's, a, it's been a, a really interesting change. So the SAT and the ACT are such traditional exams. Uh, my wife's American, and I think she was taking SAT entrance uh, prep courses at the start of grade nine, which would be unheard of for an Australian. Um, but the SAT and the ACT through the COVID period, it was a diminishing value because a lot of the testing centres, it was still taken as a paper-based test, were closed down during that period. So a lot of universities stopped requiring it for admission purposes. And this is important to note. If you Google the SAT, you'll see the first couple of lines says, oh, you don't need it anymore. That is true. That's for admission purposes, but that's not for academic aid. So we talk about maximizing these pots of funding. Yes, your sporting scholarship is valuable, but the second biggest and sometimes the biggest pot of funding is the academic aid. So we want to maximise that. So what, what we advise everybody to do at Aussie Athletes Agency is to take that test regardless, right? And we can use a, a high-end a high end score to open, open up academic aid. And it's, it's really, as, as you would know, Lockie, it's, it's a free crack. You can take the SAT test multiple times. Uh, they're split into well, – US college coaches talk about a combined score. And the combined score is the maths and the critical reading um, each section is out of 800 points, so 1,600 total. Uh, if you do the SAT test twice, hypothetically, you could use your maths score from test one and combine it with your critical reading score from test two for a, a, a combined score of whatever it might be, and that'll open up academic aid. They're not going to look at that for admission purposes. They'll solely look at your GPA your coursework in high school, but it will open up funding streams for you, which I think for most Australian families is very important. Talking about maximising potential and maximising funding, if we turn away from the academic side and move over to the athletic side, I know that UTR and, and WTN is a big question mark, especially in Australia, as we know that they have scrapped their entire ranking system and, and replaced it with the UTR system. And I'm sure many parents ask you, you know, what does my son or what does my daughter's UTR need to be to be accepted into a certain college? Uh, we get that a lot, and it's a, it's a contentious subject. It's, it's quite divisive uh, in tennis, uh, constantly evolving. I mean, those that are of my vintage might remember the AR, Australian ranking, which, uh, you know, Tennis Australia, to their credit, invested quite heavily in that system. And then UTR came into, into play which is an algorithm-based system originally born out of actually college tennis uh, where Dave Fish uh, was heavily involved. He was the head coach at Harvard, a, a very good friend of mine, um, very smart fellow, and, and he was using it as a recruiting algorithm. Um, they've gone on to 
commercialize it essentially and um, Universal Tennis was born. The ITF had come up with its own system uh, or, or rating. I mean, what I'd, what I'd encourage everyone to do is develop your game. There are always going to be different systems and different rankings and ratings. But at the end of the day, if you're developing your game and you're competing hard, and probably what's most troubling for me is that I'm starting to notice that junior tennis players are trying to be tactical with when they play and who they play. And that's not what great competitors do. Great competitors seek out competition and they engage in competition and they find find challenge. And at the end of the day, college tennis players, uh, college coaches, uh, I beg your pardon, are looking for competitors. So get out and play as much as you can. Um, compete hard, learn how to compete, which is pivotal uh, to be a successful collegiate tennis player. And coaches are going to look for that. How much have you played? Um, sure, who have you played? Your significant wins, maybe your rankings and ratings across a variety of systems. But at the end of the day, who, they're looking for people that can be successful between the ages of, well, 18 and, and potentially up to 23, 24 in, the, in that bracket. So I suppose my advice is more based on my experience as a, as a tennis coach than it is trying to tactically navigate the, the current systems. The more you play, the more competition that you engage yourself in, then naturally that your WTN or UTR will go higher. And, and speaking to the head women's tennis coach at, at Tennessee, Alison O'Hedda, she said that uh, Australian players actually do have a, a lower UTR just based on whether Australia is geographically located, they don't get as much competition. So an Australian who has a 10 UTR might be an 11 here in the US. So I think yeah. coaches... Yeah, I've heard, I've heard, I know Alison was actually an assistant coach at Baylor, my alma mater, for a period of time on the women, women's tennis side. I've known Alison a while. She, she also hired Jared Chaplin, a great Australian player and now... He's, he's no longer at Tennessee, but was the associate head coach there and, and is now the associate head coach at the University of Georgia. So Alison knows the Australian system really well, has had a lot of successful Australian players. I think most recently, Catherine Ullier is there at the moment. Uh, Tanika McGiffin just, just graduated and has done a phen- phenomenal job. She would know, as well as anybody, uh, it's about accuracy. It's about trying to uh, get the level match right. Um, and I think it's... It's not a good situation if the level is too high for somebody because they aren't getting enough playing opportunities. And it's certainly not a good situation if the level's too low because that challenge point's not there for their development. So either way, it's a bad situation. We have noticed just with our own data that Australians' UTR typically, it's more often lower than it is higher. Uh, And we know that because when they come into the collegiate space in the U.S., the UTR generally pops up between half a level and a full level uh, within 12 months' time. I had a young fellow that I'll give a pat on the back to named Declan Townsend. Declan went to Lewis and Clark for his first year. He's now transferred uh, essentially because he's looking for, for the right tennis challenge into the NCAA Division I University of St. Louis. And Declan's UTR went up one, one level, one entire level within a, a, a well, really a nine-month period. It's about finding a measure that's accurate. And so, yeah, UTR, I think we, we found more college tennis coaches are increasingly asking us about WTN, uh, World Tennis Number, the, the, the ITS measure recently. Uh, in years past, it, it definitely has been UTR. But a lot of coaches that are experienced in, uh, with Australians are also asking us about significant events 
head-to-head match results, uh, style of play, you know, athleticism, competitive spirit, and whether they will be great in the team environment. And those elements are, are normally what separates the best players from just good players in college tennis. One thing that I got out of the whole admission process is the whole question of do you want to play high-level matches playing number one or number two at a, a good community college or would you want to be playing, you know, fighting for a spot at six, playing six, seven or eight in the lineup, not getting as much playing time. So, you know, you've always got to mm. determine the the benefits versus the risks, you know, and, and I think educating parents on that can probably be difficult, right? Oh, absolutely. I, I think managing expectations when it's such an unknown is always tricky no matter what industry you're in. I think it's it's really important for Australians to understand that there are a little under 10,000 college tennis players in the US if you're a male and a little over 10,000 college tennis players in the female ranks. That's a lot of players. And, and within that, you've obviously got your governing bodies and your divisions and the standard of play is very high. It's important to note that a lot of people worldwide have the goal of becoming a collegiate tennis player and only then, if they're good enough and if they've earned the right, do they consider going professional. So, and to your point, if you're playing one or two on a team, you're obviously bringing an amount of value, I guess, to your team. And that amount of value equates to a certain level of tennis scholarship. So if you're going in playing one or two, then generally you're going to be on a higher percentage of tennis scholarship. And if you're coming in playing at the lower end of the lineup or just outside of it, then that's not generally rewarded with much tennis scholarship in the following year. So tennis scholarships are, are broken up almost always. The only division and governing body on the men's and women's side that where it isn't broken up is NCAA Division One, right? So an NCAA Division One for men, you've got four and a half scholarships, and it's called an equivalency uh, scholarship if you can split it up into percentages. So four and a half scholarships on a roster size of between nine and 10 players on average, that doesn't go a long way. And let's not forget that you can add on academic aid on top of that 10 scholarship, right? And other bursary stipends and other words that we can use that individual universities may have for funding to increase your financial package, right? But the tennis scholarship alone is limited to four and a half, whereas on the women's side, you've got eight full scholarships and you've got the same roster size. All right. So if we go down through um, or across through the divisions and governing bodies, NCAA Division Two also got four and a half on the men's side. You've got six also equivalency. Right. You can split the six up on the women's side in NCAA Division Two. NCAA Division Three, again, Google can sometimes mislead people. It will say that you you cannot receive an athletic scholarship, and a lot of people in Australia then disregard NCAA Division Three. But they still have the other pots of funding. They can do some really beneficial things with financial aid and academic aid in the NCAA Division Three space. And you've got some phenomenal universities under that governing body or under that division, places like MIT, Caltech, um, NYU, uh, University of Chicago, phenomenal uh, institutions that have made a decision essentially to be NCAA Division Three. There's still funding uh, to be gained there. In NAIA, you've got five scholarships in, for both men and women. And for junior college, you've got nine scholarships for both men and women. There was a time uh, before everyone gets too excited about the nine scholarships and knowing that's the biggest number of, of the lot. There was a time where 
they were limited in how many of those nine or what percentage of those nine they could actually give to internationals. But that's largely not the case anymore. So the number you play equates to, I guess, where you sit uh, within your own team, but also your opponent. You know, you're, you're playing at a higher level in one and two spot. You'll play the one and two from your the opposition teams, but it can also match the scholarship, at least the athletic or tennis scholarship you're on when you're playing at that level. I guess in, in the US, an entire degree is always four years. Uh, that's an undergraduate bachelor degree, whereas in Australia, it could be three, four, even five years. So there's no variance in US degrees. And one question that I always had when I was at college, I was like, man, well, ha- how do I transfer this back to Australia? Like, if I want to do further studies, will it be accepted? If I want to apply for a job, are they going to look at a US degree? But now, and, and mm. correct me if I'm wrong here, David, but many postgraduate courses, so that's a master's program or above, uh, are accepting a bachelor's degree as an entry level uh, into their course. So a doctor of physiotherapy, for example, or a Masters of Exercise Science or a Masters of Accounting, as long as you've done the, uh, a bachelor degree and you meet the criteria for classes, then you can get into those courses, even though you've done your study in, a, in America, wanting to return back to Australia. Yeah, that's what I'm lucky. Uh, I mean, the world's a smaller place. Let's just start there. Qualifications, while varied, uh, and we, we, Australia and the US have, uh, in, terms of, in terms of the entire world, very similar cultures. And our systems, while pretty different in our eyes, are actually fairly similar when we look at other countries. So we obviously study in English. A lot of our degrees are similarly named. Uh, a lot of the coursework is similar. Uh, we use a, a, a rule of thumb with Aussie Athletes Agency where when you are working on people, and in that category I'd put medicine, physio, psychology, things of that nature, then you need to be certified by the governing bodies of your industry in the country where you practice. I like to say to people, hey, listen, doesn't matter where in the world I studied, if I was a brain surgeon, I can't just uh, pop into a city in Australia and set up shop and start operating on people. People in Australia and, and the, uh, the certifications we have and, and the governing bodies need to know that uh, I, I know what I'm doing before I do such a thing. And the reverse is true. Right. Um, Australians, you know, with our degrees, couldn't go into the US and, and start practicing immediately. So uh, typically in those industries, the gaps need to be filled. So you would provide your coursework to a university that grants that particular degree or certification. They would attempt to draw a straight line between the coursework that you've completed and what they provide, and they would give you credit for those things. And then the bigger category in this rule of thumb are industries where you work with people, not on people. Now, industries such as business is a classic example. Uh, If you gain a degree in business from a university, uh, an international university, and you are in an interview process for a particular position, I I can speak from experience because we we hire uh, and we you know search for, for for great staff with our team at Aussie Athletes Agency. And when we're talking to them, we're looking for points of difference. So if you're in an interview process and there are 10 main applicants and nine of those applicants went to a, a domestic university, gained the same degree, same GPA, same performance level, but then the 10th person went overseas, was an athlete, had a different experience, and is now home, and they're wanting to interview three people. 
chances are that the person that's had or ha has the point of difference on paper is going to be picked out of that pile and they're going to want to have a chat with you. So our graduates typically get an opportunity at a higher level than they expect because of that point of difference. I think it's also important to note that the two, culturally, your education in the US, they value your experience and your holistic education outside of class, college, on college campus, amongst your peers, getting involved in clubs, obviously in sport uh, and representing your university at the same or higher level than they value what's written on the piece of paper on your degree. Now, I don't think that's necessarily the case in Australia from talking to parents. I think what is written on that piece of paper is still the most highly valued thing to come out of your college experience by a fair way. So in the US, it's not just about the, the words on that degree, but it's also the learnings that you've gained from that four or potentially more years of experience on campus. Uh, I can speak from experience. I studied physiotherapy at Baylor University, and I know for a fact in the US, I rarely get asked what I studied, but without fail, I will be asked where I studied. And what that tells people is a little bit about who you are, not just what you know. And I think all of us can, can, to a certain extent, agree with that philosophy. Yeah, when you look at athletes wanting to go to college, it's not always about, hey, I'm just going to go to college so as a stepping stone to go on the pro tour. But there is so much in life that it offers. You know, after you graduate at 22, 23, but for the rest of your life, you have this whole holistic mindset that can really be developed and all the, all the relationships and friendships that you make along the way. Uh, I know we were speaking off air and, and how important that is. Yeah, absolutely. The alumni networks, as I call them here, I mean, essentially it's your closest you know, group of, of mentors and friends. Uh, as you know, Lockie, I'm in Texas at the moment. I'm, I'm traveling in the US because uh, we really value as an agency checking in with our current athletes and making sure they're transitioning well and uh, also sitting down with college coaches and, and meeting them and learning more about their programs and seeing them face to face and seeing these environments in person. So I went to a, an ex-teammate's house last night, uh, so not too far from Baylor University here in Dallas, and um, all of my old teammates, you know, showed up just to get together. Uh, and, and some of them, a lot of all of them, uh, are doing amazingly well, uh, successful not only in business and life and family and, 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 and happy and, and just doing wonderful things. And it was an... Uh, it is an amazing uh, family that I am fortunate enough to be a part of. And I think all college tennis alumni feel that. They know what I'm talking about. And I, I, I want that. I want that for Australian student athletes to feel that level of support that they've been a part of something. But I, I also think that kind of having, having the alumni networks here are not just professionally powerful, but having a support structure where you have gone through not just great times but challenging times with them just provides you a you know that strength of friendship and and uh, camaraderie tribalism to a certain extent that is uh, a pleasure to be a part of i know we've spoken a lot about transitioning from college onto getting a job and possibly going to further study but what about transitioning from high school? You've just finished your year 12 and you're transitioning to your first year, your freshman year of college, regardless of starting in the fall or 
starting in the spring. But what do you say to students making that transition? I know there's a lot of cultural differences and uh, a lot of academic differences as well, just because the systems are a little bit different. Yeah, well, uh, firstly, it depends on what their, their passions are. What are their goals? Uh, you mentioned earlier that you know a lot of people come out of junior tennis in Australia and they want to be a professional tennis player. And, and I think that's wonderful. If that's their passion and that's a goal for them, it's important that they're in an environment that supports that. I hope that they understand the, the chances, just statistically, of them making a, a living from hitting a tennis ball. Uh, we certainly don't want to crush dreams, and it's important that people uh, follow the, those dreams. But statistically speaking, most people will earn their living doing something else. And so we think it's important that you don't put all your eggs in one basket. And the college tennis space is perfect for that. In terms of the transition, the first thing I say to people is, hey, listen, remember you're going to be homesick. Expect to be homesick. In fact, if you're not homesick, that would worry me. I like my mum's cooking. I like my hometown. You know, I have great friends too that had great friends and still have great friends that I was in high school with. Expect to miss them, right? We're very fortunate in Australia. We have a great standard of living. Uh, we have fantastic weather. We, it's, it's an enjoyable place to live. We are not leaving Australia because we're trying to get away from something. What we're trying to do is expand our opportunities and get into an environment that allows us to be successful. So coming to the US while, again, as I mentioned earlier, is a very similar culture to Australia, there are unique differences. One of those differences, I believe, is how much Americans are genuinely enthusiastic, but also want you to succeed. The tall poppy syndrome, uh, if those of, of my vintage are listening uh, at the moment, is, is not prevalent in the US in any way. People will support you. They'll cheer for you. Uh, they will want to help you be successful and they'll want to be around that. There's a confidence to, to performance here in the US. And it's important to note culturally that Americans separate confidence and arrogance. And I think in, in the Australian culture, we don't necessarily always separate those two things. Uh, they, they tend to be blended a little bit. So confidence is revered and respected in America. Arrogance isn't. It, just like arrogance isn't in Australia, but confidence definitely is. So, and, and people will want you to be confident. People will want you to succeed and, and people will want to be around that. So if you are somebody that wants to be a part of that type of environment, particularly, you know, tennis, college tennis is a team sport. And a lot of junior tennis players in Australia have not experienced a lot of team tennis. Uh, so it is, it is pretty different when you're out there practicing with a teammate and they eyeball you and say, hey, listen, I'm going to get after you today, right? I'm going to try and beat up on you. And they mean it genuinely, but they mean it in a way that is going to improve you. They want to play well in order to give you a great practice so you both can improve. And that's the type of environment day in, day out that gets people better. And after that practice, after they've eyeballed you and said, hey, listen, I'm going to get after you, no matter who's won on the day or who's played better, they're going to high-five you and say, hey, that was great. And then they might be your roommate. They'll certainly be your teammate. You'll go to the cafeteria and, you know, get along like great mates. But there's a difference in the experience that a lot of Australians have on the practice court than what a lot of college tennis players have on the practice So after you have been offered a scholarship, the coaches said, uh, yep, come on board, you sign the letter of intent. 
obviously you've got to go through the visa application process. There's consulates in Melbourne, Sydney, uh, and Perth. I know there's an embassy in Canberra. I'm not sure how much of the visa processing they do there, but what's the whole uh, application like? Yeah, so the, the visa process has become trickier. Obviously, we've gone through the COVID time where some of the consulates were shut down for a period and, and basically made the, the waiting times exorbitant. So we really send people to whichever one is obviously cost-effective uh, and typically those are the, uh, the consulates that are closer to them, uh, but also have the shorter waiting time. In short, because it is quite a complicated process, uh, we receive what's called an I-20 from a university in the US uh, or the student athlete and their family do. Uh, and that I-20 connects them to that university as a future student. So they're applying for what's called an F1 student visa from a US consulate in Australia. We, we've never had any student athlete we've ever worked with uh, that hasn't received an F1 student visa once they've received their I-20. So it is somewhat of a, an automated process, but certainly they won't. And in, in, in they, I mean the, the US government, the US consulate won't advertise it as such. They'll talk about it being interview. There are certain questions and things that you will uh, be asked when you arrive for that interview. And they can be anything from, you know, have you already booked your flight? Which just, I guess, a, a little word of advice here. Definitely say no. They don't like you booking your flight before they've actually given you the visa uh, to be there. That visa allows you, the F1 visa allows you five years in the US uh, to complete your studies. You can go freely uh, in and out of the country with very little restriction other than uh, where and when and how much you can earn if you happen to work uh, while on that visa. Uh, so the process is fairly standardised. Each, each consul is slightly different in how they, they actually go about things. Uh, the biggest difficulty, I would say, for most people is leaving enough time to go through that process, depending on what time of year it is. If we have a freshman that happens to be starting in January or what they call the spring uh, in the US, then that process can be a little tricky because if they've just graduated from high school, generally... Australians don't receive their certificate of education till mid-December. And then we're trying to rush through getting final eligibility ticked off by the governing bodies in the US. And then the individual university that they're attending is trying to issue that I-20, all while we're navigating Christmas holidays, New Year's holidays, and getting them on campus typically in the second week of January. So it can be pretty tough there. But outside of that, I think it's, it's, it's a fairly standardised process for us at Aussie Athletes Agency, we handle everything from, uh, you know, the, the initial priorities and working with families and, and I guess initially actually figuring out whether this is a pathway that is actually right for them, all the way to targeting specific universities, conversations with college coaches, scholarship negotiation, academic admission, obviously the student visa process, and then beyond to the point where I'm sitting in the US today, here supporting our current student athletes. So, it's all part of it, uh, but making sure, even though I said that list of things and, and those are, you know, it's a, it's a list of many things. Those are some of the highlights. It can take some time. So my biggest piece of advice is making sure that you do it early enough where the delays aren't going to be too stressful.
And is there ever a time where an athlete goes over to the US, but they're not eligible through their through their division? So I know that there's the NCAA clearinghouse as an example, and maybe they've played too many pro tournaments, or maybe they've accepted too much prize money. Is that ever something that you always look at before sending students over? Oh, 100%. Um, yeah, for us, we're looking at eligibility, amateurism, um, before we, we would even to be honest, engage with a with a player or, or their family. We're letting them know that. We're looking through academics. We're seeing whether they're eligible. Um, eligible eligibility and viability, I'd say, two slightly different things. Eligibility being the, the objective measures of, of academics and tennis level and, and things. And viability is more about uh, the finances, you know, what they're looking for, uh, I guess what they can, what level they uh, can produce at the moment on a tennis court and are likely to produce standard-wise. So those two things have to be there for you to engage with this process and certainly engage with Aussie Athletes Agency. So we are, I would say, fortunate and proud that we've got 100% success rate. And what that means is we do those checks before we would press forward. And we want to make sure that families have all the information and have a really good understanding of this process and pathway before they actually make any type of commitment. Uh, and then once we all decide that it is viable, then we press forward and, and we make it a priority to make this a personalised process. So that means that everybody has a, a unique set of goals and priorities and preferences, and we target universities based on those things. So a lot of Australians come into this, I suppose, thinking of a couple of things. Scholarship might be one of them, or almost is always one of them, um, and potentially a couple of brand name universities. But you've got roughly 4,500 universities in the US, all offering a vast difference uh, of experience, academic pathways, coaching styles and facilities, standard of play, uh, you name it, right? size of the, the city or the town you're in, as well as the size of the university and the student body. So with all of those environments offering different things, the one thing I can say confidently is that there's an environment that would match everybody, but it's about understanding what environments to target based on those priorities matching the university environment. That's the critical part. Right. This should not be a process where you're selling yourself to the highest bidder and too often it becomes that. I think with all of this, it, that's really important to remember. I've unknowingly a little bit accidentally uh, uh, marketed Google on this, uh, on this chat, but I'll say it again. If you jump onto Google first and look up particularly universities, all of them have fancy facilities. All of them have great records. All of them have great tennis players and, and they'll market their academic degrees and, and, of course, social media is, is glowing and everyone's happy and doing great things. It's all exciting. That's not generally what separates the environment, right? Um, what separates it is actually you, the listener. And if you think about what things are important to you, uh, it becomes a, it, this process becomes about you and not them. And that's really critical. So many amazing insights and something that I wish – I listened to, uh, and if this podcast was available 10, 12 years ago when I was making that transition from high school to college, I mean, so many students don't actually really know what to expect until they actually get there the first time. So having all this knowledge and information uh, pre-hand is, is great. You know, speaking about academics, athletics, 
visa applications and, and really making that transition to college. Uh, so, David, I, I really appreciate your time coming on uh, our ninth episode of Play USA. And uh, thanks again. Oh, I really appreciate it. A big thank you to David for coming on our Play USA podcast. I hope that this answers any questions surrounding college tennis that you may have had, whether it be academics, athletics, the visa process. Uh, can I use my American degree back in Australia? This is all answered uh, in this episode. One thing that really stood out to me is that everyone is different. So with over 4,000 colleges in the US, there is definitely one for you that will meet your uh, athletic and academic needs. Tennis is a top five sport for Australian student athletes studying at US colleges and universities. The United States college system is a great fit for students who want to play their sport at a competitive level while studying for a degree. And Education USA can help you as you explore these options. Education USA is your official source on US higher education. In Australia, there are three offices located at US consulates in Melbourne, Sydney, and Perth. With over 4,000 US colleges and universities to choose from, there will be one that meets your academic and athletic profile. Education USA provides programs and resources to help you get to a US college. Connect by searching online for Education USA Australia. That's a wrap for this episode. We look forward to bringing you our next edition, episode 10, for our November edition. The First Serve is your home of tennis at thefirstserve.com.au. Log on to find out all the details of our live radio show, other podcasts, read weekly features by our team of writers, and follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and subscribe to our YouTube channel.